Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled John the Baptist, Divine Wisdom from the Lunatic Fringe. For Sunday, December 10th, 2006, the second Sunday in Advent. In the movie Life or Something Like It, from the year 2002. Every day at the corner of 4th and Sanders in downtown Seattle, Prophet Jack scrambled onto his crate, dramatically thrust his arms into the air, arched his back, threw back his head, gazed into the sky, and then prophesied, I see and I say, intoned Jack. One day, the television reporter, Lainey Kerrigan, happened by Jack's urban pulpit. She tossed a few coins into his coffer, and in return received a disturbing message. Prophet Jack prophesied that the Seahawks would beat the Broncos 16-13, to that it would hail the next day, and that on Thursday, Lainey would die. At first, she dismissed Jack as outrageously loony, until he looked her straight in the eye and with utmost seriousness said, Prophets don't joke. Laney was a bottle blonde, but she wasn't a dumb blonde. And so, when Jack's first two prophecies came true, she repented of her ways and reformed her life. Jack is not a bad imitation of a biblical prophet. In the Bible, prophets see with unusual clarity the significance of current events or the circumstances of God's people, and then based upon their diagnosis, they say a word from Yahweh to provoke his people to change. They see and they say. In other words, they do more forthtelling about the present than foretelling about the future, more prognosis than prediction. Prophets connect God's word with our world and explain each to the other. Sometimes they deliver a word of rebuke, at other times a word of social, political, economic, or religious analysis, and oftentimes a word of hope and encouragement. They ultimately speak a redemptive word, for in the words of Jack, prophets don't joke. God, in his unfailing mercy, always pursues his people. He's the gracious hound of heaven who doesn't stand by idly and let his people flounder. For about a thousand years, from Moses to Malachi, God spoke to his people Israel by sending them prophets. Abraham was the first person to be called a prophet in Genesis 20, verse 7. But it was with Moses that Israel's prophetic institution took, sh took shape. Moses outlined the criteria for true and false prophets in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and was himself called a prophet without peer in Deuteronomy 34.10. Across the centuries, God sent significant women prophets like Miriam, Exodus 15.20, Huldah, 2 Kings 22.14, Deborah, 
Judges 4, verse 4. In Noadiah, Nehemiah, chapter 6, verse 14. By the time that Israel was exiled to Babylon, Jeremiah summarized their prophetic history. We read in Jeremiah 7, verse 25, From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. Malachi, the Old Testament reading for this week, was Israel's last prophet in two senses. His book, his book comes last in the Old Testament, and his book was also the chronologically the latest. Malachi wrote about a hundred years after the exiles had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. In other words, in the year 450 BC. This dates him the closest in time to the birth of Jesus. After Malachi, there was a 450-year prophetic silence, and then a direct link with the first prophet of the New Testament period, John the Baptist, the subject of the Gospel readings for this week. In the Gospels, there are at least three distinct references to John the Baptist as the forerunner who was prophesied in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. In this week's Gospel, Luke pinpoints the precise time and place when, as we read, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah. Scholars debate how to calculate the regnal years of Rome's emperors, but Luke calls it the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which dates his story to about the year 26 AD. Luke provides additional political commentary specifying that the word of God came to John the Baptist, quote, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Then, after naming Rome's political powers, both great and small, Luke identifies Jerusalem's religious establishment during the high priesthood of Annas and his successor, Caiaphas. But the word of the Lord came neither from imperial Rome nor from Israel's religious establishment. It didn't come from someone dressed in fashionable clothes who lived in an expensive palace, said Jesus, Luke 7.25. We might add that nor did it come from a business boardroom a university laboratory, a ski lodge, or a power lunch. No, God's word to his people came from a wild and woolly man who lived in the deep of the desert, on the fringes of society rather than its quarters of power, at the periphery rather than at the epicenter. As with the prophet Jack, so with the prophet John. The divine messenger in his message originated in an unlikely place and from an improbable source, and therefore was easy to ignore. Luke calls John the Baptist a prophet of the Most High, who proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
John urged listeners to prove their spiritual intentions by concrete deeds rather than by claims of religious affiliation. Some among the crowds took John at his word, but neither the political powers nor the religious establishment did. Some listeners even dismissed him as demon-possessed. About six months after John emerged from the desert like some scraggly lunatic and baptized Jesus, he was beheaded at the whim of Herod the Tetrarch, who at a dinner party one night capitulated to the sadistic demand of his girlfriend's daughter. John was a forerunner of Jesus, but he was also a foreteller to Herod, having rebuked Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife. Matthew 14, 1-12 But as with many perverse politicians, Herod had his way with him who had spoken truth to power, and so John was murdered. As for the religious establishment, Jesus tells us that the Pharisees and experts in the law spurned John's call to repentance, and in so doing, quote, rejected God's purpose for themselves, end quote. Luke 7, verse 30. The prophetic word of God from John the Baptist then did not originate with the state powers or the religious establishment, nor did it find a receptive audience with them. God sending his prophets is one thing. Our listening to them is another. John the Baptist announced the claims of God's kingdom upon our lives as ultimate. And that means that the claims of race, gender, culture, money, political or religious allegiance are at best penultimate. With his announcement, John counsels us to repent of anything and everything that might hinder absolute and ultimate allegiance to Jesus. This Advent, he invites us to make our crooked ways straight, to flatten all hilly terrain, and to prepare space for the birth of the Messiah into our own lives. And now for further reflection. In the words of the Christmas hymn, how might you prepare him room this Advent? Secondly, why do we dismiss divine wisdom from apparently unlike, unlikely sources? And can, can you give examples from your own experience? Third, why did the political powers and the religious authorities reject John the Baptist? And finally, to quote Seattle's prophet Jack, if God could see your life, What would he say to you? For books this week, we have a very important book by Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. And I've made an exception this week by reprinting an essay that was written by Martin Marty in The Christian Century, November 14, 2006. The title of Martin Marty's essay about Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, is called Sneers. Here, Martin Marty. 
At a conference in Maine last month, I was cast alongside Richard Dawkins, author of the best-selling book, The God Delusion. But we did not debate. We were on parallel paths and went in opposite directions. His career and his book are devoted to opposing all religions and all manifestations of faith. He argues that humanity will truly be on the path to progress only after all traces of religion are expunged. And he calls on readers to join in the expunging. My vocation is to do my doubting within the context of faith. My theme, whether a Dawkins is on stage or not, is to note that around the world, faith communities, religion, and spiritual forces are growing in size and in intensity. This is a phenomenon that has nothing to do with truth or falsehood, their goodness or evil. But the phenomenon does suggest that it is pointless to talk about and work on doing away with them. Energies are better spent observing the ways in which faith and faiths can heal, console, judge, offer interpretations of life, and build communities that work for the common good. The God delusion, which is selling wildly, perhaps inspires those inclined to be anti-religious to be really anti-religious. But it has evoked devastating reviews by other scientists and philosophers who recognize that while Dawkins is a distinguished scientist, he knows little about religion. Reviewers Terry Eagleton, Robert Nozick, Marilyn Robinson, and Jim Holt have issued critiques in periodicals that are not known to be promoters of piety, such as the London Review of Books, New Republic, Harper's Magazine, and the New York Times Book Review. What to make of the popularity of anti-religious books in religious America? Do they address overblown and under-criticized religious claims? Good. Do they flatter faith by taking it seriously? Good. Does intelligent criticism refine and quicken faith and faiths? Surely. But often in an America that craves entertainment and titillation these critiques are mostly showbiz. Decades ago, I wrote a book called The Infidel, Free Thought in American Religion, in which I noted that free thinkers and atheists have offered a source of entertainment in a religiously complacent America. Ancestors of Dawkins like Robert Owen, Robert Ingersoll, and H.L. Mencken drew crowds and sales in their own times always with showbiz effects. And then their pious critics thrilled audiences by responding. They would draw listeners to the edges of philosophical cliffs and then deliver them back to their churches. Profound criticism challenges puffy religion, perhaps. But in the case of the God delusion, many reviewers responded the way William Paley did in the 19th century when he was faced with a truly great attack on faith, Edward Gibbons's The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Paley's response was very simple. Who can refute a sneer? Martin Marty, in his review of The God Delusion, by Richard Dawkins. For film this week, I review Transamerica. 
In a remarkable performance that reminded me of Charlize Theron's transformation into Eileen Wernos, Felicity Huffman plays a transsexual man named Bree, who was a few days shy of having his male-to-female sexual reassignment surgery. When she discovers that she fathered a son long ago, her therapist will not sign off for the surgery until she confronts her past. So Bree travels to New York City and meets her son Toby. Toby is a street prostitute and drug abuser who aspires to make porn movies in Los Angeles. Bree poses as a missionary sort, and the two of them make a way too long and boring trip from New York to California. This film did not work for me for many reasons. The relationship between Toby and Bree was not believable, nor was the film's ending. But Huffman's portrayal does an incredible job of capturing the pain, emotional isolation, and confusion of a person who lives in this netherworld of unspoken taboos. She's intelligent, modest, deferential, homely, and has no interest in making any political statements. Why has this film been billed as a comedy? Anyone who's experienced these very real-life issues would not find any of it laughable. Transamerica from the year 2005. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted the poem In the Bleak Midwinter by the English poet Christina Rossetti, who lived from 1830 to 1894. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship day and night, breastful of milk in a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim throng the air, but his mother only in her maiden bliss worship the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can give him, give my heart. In the Bleak Midwinter by Christina Rossetti Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for the second Sunday in Advent, December 10th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.